This is Kelly. This is Jen. This is Heather. And you're listening to Whiskey Cats. Yay! <laughs> On this episode of Whiskey Cats, we explore the National Archives exhibit Spirited Republic Alcohol in American History with exhibit curator Bruce Bustard. So pour yourself a glass and come along as we walk through the exhibit. Hi, I'm Bruce Bustard, and I'm the curator of the National Archives exhibit Spirit of Republic, Alcohol in American History. And we're standing here in the entrance to the exhibition, uh, standing right next to our tower of alcohol jugs. And this display shows how much alcohol was consumed uh, per year by each by on, on average for each uh, drinking age person and so for example the first thing that everybody seems to notice is that for 1830 it is much 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 higher than uh, many than the other years and it comes out to 7.1 gallons of what's called absolute alcohol it's the alcohol content as opposed to the li- liquid that's consumed um, per person uh, per drinking age person per year Wow, that that is a lot, and it's it came obviously way down before the turn of the turn of the century, the yeah. 1800s. Yeah, it actually it starts going up around 1790 mm-hmm. and reaches that peak in 1830, and uh, not so coincidentally, that is around the time that the temperance movement gets started too. So I think there is a connection to the astounding amount of alcohol that was being consumed around 1830 or or so and the the growth of the temperance movement. Definitely. And then if we go around the corner, do we see an increase? Well, you see, actually, uh, it stays roughly the same. I mean, uh, somewhere plus or minus a couple of uh, two gallons, something like that, except for the decade of prohibition. um, There's all kinds of uh, assumptions that people make, I think largely because of TV and movies and things like that, that that prohibition was a wild drinking time. And certainly there were places and there were situations where the the tremendous drinking took place. But in fact, um, prohibition really did reduce the amount of alcohol that Americans drank, especially the beginning of uh, the prohibition era. And it falls down to just about uh, under one gallon uh, per person. Now, all of these are estimates. Right, right. So, um, and, and, and especially this particular decade. Right, because obviously there's no tax data because nobody was collecting taxes on alcohol. <laughs> Great. Um, so do you want to tell me a little bit about sort of where um, the idea for this exhibit came from? Sure. Uh, a few years ago, we did an exhibit about food in the federal government. And it was a big success and even before that exhibit opened up people started to say you know we're doing food we ought to do drink next and so that's really where the the exhibit came from uh, and uh, I was asked to, to curate it and uh, worked on this exhibit for uh, roughly around two years or so before it opened. How much research goes into presenting an exhibit like this? There's a lot of research. Mm -hmm. You do a lot of sort of, especially for a subject that you don't 
start off knowing a lot about. In this case, I didn't, I'm not an alcohol scholar. <laughs> so um, you have to familiarize yourself with um, some of the historical literature on this, this topic. Um, you know, everything from prohibition to treatments for alcoholism to the patent and trademark function of the federal government. And then you begin to think about the kinds of records that might be in the National Archives. And the National Archives holds the records of federal government agencies. So then you do start thinking about, well, where would those records be? And you think about, well, the Patent and Trademark Office, you think about the different prohibition bureaus during the, during the 1920s. Um, you think about uh, if there are things like um, records of hospitals that might have treatment um, for alcoholism. You think about the alcohol in the military. So uh, there's a lot of research. Uh, one of the first cases that we have in the exhibit deals with, the, uh, with alcohol and the American Revolution. People uh, associate the American Revolution with a different beverage, uh, with tea. But in fact, alcohol played a really big role if you were a Continental soldier, you um, could be recruited and one of the things you would be promised would be a daily ration of spirits. Uh, the tavern was a real hotbed of revolutionary fervor. It's where politics was discussed and also where um, soldiers were recruited. We have a couple of documents on display. We have got a receipt for the uh, for the Navy, uh, having received a variety of alcohol, uh, cherry brandy and spirit and um, um, and sherry and things like that, and then we've got a petition that where a person is asking the Continental Congress if they could supply alcohol to the Continental Army. Alcohol was also alcohol also accompanied. The Lewis and Clark expedition in the early 19th century got a receipt for wine and kegs purchased by Meriwether Lewis uh, for that expedition, and it is for 20 gallons of strong wine. Another one of my favorites is uh, from 1885. It shows a register that uh, lists the different kinds of alcohol that were dispensed um, on the frontier at Fort Snelling, Minnesota, by largely by the, the fort's physician. It lists the people's names and the kind of alcohol they were given and how much alcohol they were given. Not surprisingly, the same names come up over and over again. Uh, but it makes the point, and this first part of the exhibition makes the more general point, that alcohol really was considered uh, kind of part of everyday life. And it was, for example, the first medicine that many physicians went to. We have a, uh, since your listeners are interested in whiskey, uh, one of the most striking things we have on display here is a label for Simon Crow's Pure White Wheat Whiskey. And it's a beautiful lithograph and once again shows how whiskey is seen as being a part of of life. It shows some men working out in the fields and they're taking a break for, I, I assume it's lunch, and uh, women are bringing them a wonderful, what looks like a picnic out to the fields, 
but along with the hams and the chicken and the and all kinds of other kinds of food they're bringing jugs of whiskey and this was if you could see it it is the label is done in a kind of a circular fashion it is a circle and uh, the reason that he did this in this way is that the the label is designed to go on the end of the whiskey barrel and he makes a point of saying he's designed this lithograph at great expense because he wants to differentiate his great tasting whiskey from imitators first um, instance of branding yes this is this is early branding yeah uh, it's quite elaborate it has wonderful wonderful sort of bucolic scene and it has great color and it has it's surrounded by flowers and grains and things like it's, that it's beautiful yeah. i expected the caution to be not um, beware of others imitators but more of a caution in the health sense so that was very no a surprise he's, yeah. he's, he's warning people not oh. to drink inferior uh, alcohol another item that people are interested in in the exhibition is a reproduction that we have here of Benjamin Rush is moral and physical thermometer Benjamin Rush was a signer of the Declaration of Independence and of course we're the home of the original Declaration of Independence but he was also America's um, most famous physician in the early national period and what he did uh, was create this thermometer where he tied uh, temperance and intemperance into uh, physical health and criminal behavior and so forth. Uh, for ex He wasn't a teetotaler. He thought it was just fine to have beer and cider and wine and things like that, but he did not like distilled spirits. And he was one of the first people to argue that alcohol, drinking alcohol, um, could be a kind of progressive descent into uh, poor health and bad behavior. And so, for example, it's just fine to have, of course, water and small beer. It brings about serenity of mind, reputation, long life, and happiness. Um, even strong beer is associated with cheerfulness, strength, and nourishment. But when you get into the distilled spirits, punch and grog and something called flip and shrub, and shrub uh, bitters and things like that you can you end up with vices such as idleness and gaming and lying and swearing and diseases um, tremors of the hands and then punishments that go all the way from debt and jails to the gallows we also have on display a a list of punishments that were meted out by uh, the captain of the crew of a U.S. Navy frigate in the 1840s, and many of the uh, in and many of the uh, uh, crimes that were committed were alcohol-related, like smuggling liquor and also drunk on duty. But one of my favorites is one that's called doubling the grog tub. Each sailor was entitled to a certain amount of spirits grog uh, per day and they would line up for getting their ration um, and in this one case i think his name is mr smith he was um, guilty of going through the line and then going back to the end of the line and trying to get a second uh, second uh, ration and 
one of the most interesting things is for all of these uh, crimes that were committed, the punishment is usually being flogged. And so you'd get 12 lashes or nine lashes or something like that. I'm not sure it was worth going back to the end of the line to get your second ration if you were going to get whipped after that. Um, so I'm curious, um, this says it's from the records of the U.S. Senate. Why yes. would the Senate hold some, something like this that's from the Navy? One of the important reform movements in the 19th century was the temperance movement. And the Senate would have investigated the use of spirits in, in the Navy, and they considered legislation uh, to ban the uh, spirit ration. And in fact, we also have a almost 10-foot-long petition from our legislative archives that where temperance advocates are calling for the end of the spirit ration. It has almost 400 signatures on it. And we're standing in front of the petition, and it's it's laid out lengthwise along the side of the wall, and it, yeah, it's about about ten feet long. It's 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 pretty impressive. Yes, it's very it's very <laughs> impressive. And one of the things that is also impressive is that this isn't the only petition on this issue that we have. We had several of these large uh, multi-signature petitions to choose from. So this really was a an issue that was a kind of a hot-button issue in the 1840s and 50s. Another petition we have on display, uh, taking the opposite point of view, is from workers in New York State, and they're calling, uh, the top of the petition reads, give us pure lager beer. And they're calling for beer to be brewed in an un unadulterated fashion, uh, using only malt and hops without additives. Uh, but it also describes beer as being a positive necessity to our masses. So throughout our history, you have a kind of a love-hate relationship with, with alcohol. Some people supporting it, saying it's a positive good. Some people opposing it as almost intrinsically evil. Uh, we're moving on into the section that deals with prohibition and with the, the years, 12 years between uh, 1920 and 1933. And uh, for example, one thing we have on petition on display is the original 18th Amendment, which is the uh, joint resolution that was proposed to the states uh, for their ratification. And the most interesting thing about this is just how brief it is and how general it is. It really didn't go into the details of what is an alcoholic beverage? What does it mean to, to manufacture alcohol? Are there any exceptions? And that was left to Congress after the amendment was passed, and they passed something that was called the Volstead Act that outlined exactly uh, what was, how this would be enforced. You can see it's, it's barely four paragraphs long. Yeah, it's, it really isn't uh, anything that uh, it would have raised as many questions as it answered. Uh, there were exceptions to the prohibition regime, and you're standing in front of a case that uh, shows an advertisement for brewing your own beer. It was legal to brew your own, own beer. It was actually legal to consume alcohol. It was just the manufacture and sale of alcohol that was banned. So you could brew your own beer, 
You could uh, make your own wine. Basically, you'd send away to California for boxes of dried up grapes, and then you'd rehydrate them and, and ferment them. Uh, and then the, we also have a, uh, a medical exemption for alcohol, and we're standing in front of a prescription for whiskey that says, basically, whiskey take is directed. Uh, that was another exception to prohibition. Prohibition ended in, in 1933, and we have uh, not only the amendment that brought us prohibition, but then the 21st Amendment that ended prohibition. And once again, it's, uh, it's quite brief. Very brief. One of the, I think, most striking displays in the exhibition is a display of alcohol uh, labels. Uh, if you were going to uh, create uh, a new drink of one kind or a new uh, product of one kind or another, by law you have to submit that label to the uh, Patent and Trademark Office. And so, for example, we have a label here for uh, Nightcap Whiskey, which shows uh, a uh, whiskey, a, a cap to a whiskey bottle, and the trademark says the whiskey with the glow. And actually, we actually we have a uh, example of the whiskey cap in our records, and it still glows. Oh wow! And all of these labels are from 1933 and 1934, so they represent the alcohol industry ramping up again as prohibition ends and so they're introducing new products and bringing back old products. Some of them are quite familiar. Uh, you can see a label for Bacardi, uh, a label for um, Iron City beer, uh, but also some interesting ones and, and quite strikingly visual ones. Marquette's blended whiskey. Um, you also have uh, a, uh, a beer that's called North Pole beer that has uh, polar bears on, on the label. During World War II, alcohol was rationed a little bit, but it was not rationed nearly as much as it was during World War I. And in fact, once again, it was seen as being somewhat medicinal. We have a telegram on display, a cable that is uh, about how medical personnel have recommended that air crews returning from uh, missions be issued medicinal whiskey um, to uh, kind of steady their nerves and help them calm down again. We also have on display an early example of the what we would call a breathalyzer, but during the early 1930s was called a drunkometer and we it's have a it's a wonderful name yeah I'm not sure whether it's pronounced drunkometer or drunkometer um, drunkometer sounds a bit more more classy and we have the patent drawing on display and then we've also borrowed a prototype of this device from the Museum of American History one of my favorite items in the exhibition is Franklin Roosevelt's cocktail shaker and some glasses that he used. Franklin Roosevelt uh, was well known for hosting 
basically cocktail parties at the end of each workday with his closest staff. And there were only two rules. One was that Roosevelt made the drinks, and apparently he was famous for making very strong drinks, and some people said not very tasty drinks. He liked to experiment with different kinds of uh, mixtures, apparently. <clears throat> and the other rule was that no business was going to be discussed during these alcohol, uh, during these cocktail um, sessions. Is this a, it almost looks like a bamboo motif on the Yeah, there's the kind shaker. of a bamboo. It's a beautiful object. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very kind of sleek and modern looking. Uh, and it, it really is, is, is quite attractive and, and beautifully mounted. Um, and one thing I like to say about this particular item is that it's an item that you can look at, an artifact you can look at, and if you think about it from one person's perspective, it has one meaning, and if you think about it from another person's perspective, it has a different meaning. For Franklin Roosevelt, this would have been uh, something he associated with relaxing at the end of the day, good time with his uh, with his closest staff. Um, so he would have had very positive associations with it. But if you think about it from possibly Eleanor Roosevelt's perspective, it has a little bit different uh, view. Eleanor was not a teetotaler, but she didn't drink very much at all. And both her brother and her father were alcoholics. And so and she rarely uh, was involved or invited to these uh, cocktail parties at the end of the day. Uh, so she would have had, I think, a very different kind of association with these, uh, this cocktail set. And finally, we've got a display of artifacts and documents from our presidential libraries. The National Archives administers the presidential libraries. And they are artifacts that were given to the presidents um, during, uh, typically during trips that they took. We have the glasses that President Ford and Secretary Brezhnev from the Soviet Union used to toast the Helsinki Agreement. We have a decanter that was presented, a crystal decanter that was presented to President Ronald Reagan on a trip he made to, to Ireland in 1984. And then we have a kind of strange looking barrel, uh, a cask with a man who's described as being a Cossack riding on top of the barrel. And this was given to President Bill Clinton on a trip he made to the Russian Federation in 1944. And the, uh, the, the cask contained vodka, is what I understand. In terms of setting up the, the exhibit and walking through the different stages of our history and our relationship with alcohol, um, what was most surprising to you in, in this research? One of the things that was most surprising was that I began to understand, I think, the temperance and prohibition movement a little bit more. And that was because I realized that one of the reasons it was popular was that this was a time before any kind of a social safety net. And if you were a woman or if you were a child and you were supported by your husband and he began to drink, he might become ill, he might drink up his paycheck, he might ultimately die. And if you were in that situation, 
you were in a great deal of trouble. And so you can understand why alcohol in some ways became demonized as, as something that led to these sort of terrible outcomes. So I can't say I'm more, maybe more sympathetic to prohibition, but I certainly feel like I understand it better. Um, I think uh, for a lot of people coming to the archives, in particularly into this exhibit, might be most familiar with Ken Burns' doc latest doc, one of his one of his latest documentaries, the about prohibition. Um, is there anything um, that maybe that is here or um, that not necessarily a part of um, those documentaries that are, that it would would be of interest to someone who would have that sort of level of knowledge about the issue? Um. I think one of the things that I realized early on was that prohibition was kind of the 800-pound gorilla of the history of alcohol in the United States, and it kind of overwhelms some of the other issues. And I was particularly uh, glad that I could find items that, that were both after and before prohibition so that I could tell a story that was uh, more complete and that 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 wasn't just about prohibition. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Glad to have you here. Thank you to Bruce for hosting us at the U.S. National Archives. Spirited Republic Alcohol in American History is on display at the U.S. National Archives through January 10th, 2016. You can see many of the items we talk about in the interview at whiskeycats.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at whiskey underscore cats. Drop us an email at whiskeycatspodcast at gmail.com or give us a call on our whiskey hotline at 202-760-2009. Until next time, cheers. Honey, baby, won't you that sweet mama whisper in your ear, I'm wild about that thing. It makes me laugh.